Welcome to Where's the Door, a literary anthology podcast featuring little-known or unpublished authors and poets from across all genres. I'm Carlos Molina. And I'm Joe Masiri. And in each episode, we'll present a collection of thematically linked short stories and poems. And this week's episode is about the relativity of depravity. It's a weird phrase, but work with me here. Everybody has bad thoughts. Some are immoral, some aren't, some are dirty, some aren't, some are just random wishes that you never really expect to come true, but whatever, they're just thoughts. You can't always control them. I'm going to plead the fifth. You're gonna, uh, it's probably a smart <laughs> move. But these, these depraved thoughts, so to speak, it really just depends on how you look at them. What may be depraved to somebody is completely normal in another culture. Rules apply at different times in different cities and different places. It really just depends on where you draw the line and how you look at it. And everybody's lines are all over the place. So it's really just a matter of luck whether or not where you draw the line is where the rest of your society or environment or culture or peers draw the line. Almost like we planned this segue. (laughs) Our first story coming up is Luck by Jax Lepage. I can't believe today was a good day. The two friends came to the garden because they'd come there as students and now they were no longer young. Retaking the bench, they became remote and dull, recalling trifles. It'd been the quarter's defiant tradesmen who'd mortared off the city block before the armies entered the city. This made the garden a sort of slough, where the citizenry could drink and dance and talk after curfew. That was 20 years ago now. But all the same, it remained a place where you could forget the world and be forgotten by it. The fish pond, an old clawfoot tub, was clotted with algae and the few surviving koi sucked at its surface in desperation. The honeysuckle had raised the tulip beds, its bundles tossing about in the unsporting warmth of the castanet, the western winds of spring. The birds, however, remained lively, bickering at the top of the wall and guttering to and fro from the square below. And yet the pale sunshine of early summer could neither know such neglect nor care for its details. As such, it revealed the two friends precisely as they were, mismatched and therefore suited to the silence allowed by the garden. Anzi was baptizing his new feather jacket with a brutal glare, his shuffling face and clean hands, completing the portrait of a city clerk willing to immolate his soul to enjoy the weekend. While Fesh, already slumped over the back of the bench, still boasted the same plum cardigan and wool trousers from university. He was squinting impatiently back at the sun, completing the portrait of a man who'd rather steal than be called a clerk, as untroubled for reason as he was troubled for everything else. He was nearing some confession, but hadn't found a way to begin. That afternoon marked the Feast of Nob, the city's celebration of the holiest of Vedic principles that of lying not to deceive, but to enchant. There was a lull to the wind, and the cause of ecstasy drifted from the street, at last breaching the silence. The same knowing grin undid the lips of the two friends. Suddenly impatient, they set out their lunch, splitting the melon bread between them, then pushing open the fish belly with their thumbs and stuffing it with relish. 
The ink cordial was passed dutifully back and forth, and Fesh was soon humming nonsensically as he paced the garden walls, no longer so taken by the sun. In his own private exasperation, he abruptly thrust his head from the portal and scanned the small view of the city. A single cardinal alighted on the temple below and fired its iridescent salvo onto the oculus. This call was returned to it tenfold from the void beneath, bucking from its magnificent perch. I'm miserable. Fesh called out after the cardinal. He paced back to the fish pond, tilting his head in doubt. My God, I'm miserable. He repeated. I'm in love. The koi looked back at him, pleadingly. Anzi snorted and crossed his legs in agitation. A smoke bobbed on his tongue, unlit. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't believe you. He said plainly. You don't have the temperament, and won't until you're in a terrible accident and lose your legs or your... But the castanet rose again and cut him off. The wind brought with it the bakery below, the mud tiling in the sun on the riverbanks, and the pyre of offerings still smoldering in the blue marble pit of the temple. Like that, the sway of those never-ending afternoons was returned to them. But love is miserable, Fesh began. All at once, your light is a button you can be plucked now and stuffed away in her pocket or fastened to whatever garment she pleases. Anzi shrugged and lit his smoke. Embarrassed, Fesh pretended to smile, but instead looked cadaverous. I was having an easy day. Fesh went on. Drinking shells on the portico under the arena while I waited for my boots. He pulled up his trousers, revealing rotten but well-polished leather. Everyone was streaming through the market, hurrying away to grand, important places. There's something pleasant about this when you've got nothing to do. My bike was still at the canal, so I took the train home. I went all the way down the platform because the crowds from the market were pouring in and the university had just let out, and besides, if you're lucky at that far end of the platform, you might get some wind up from the delta and you can close your eyes and forget the hell you're in. So I go all the way down, then I turn to watch for the train, and I find that right next to me is the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. He nearly choked on the vulgarity, eyes welling up. He shook his head. Anzi gazed at his friend, unsure whether to laugh. <laughs> You've been beating yourself up for that? He scoffed. It happens all the time, Fesh. My God, just forgive yourself the commonness. You've gotten lonely, and now your books and papers can't keep you from it anymore. Fesh exhaled shakily. I know. He murmured and cut himself off with a grimace. I know, of course, it was no different at the start, but at the time it seemed almost cosmic, like I'd eclipsed the light and she was the shadow. He laughed uncomfortably. <laughs> you see, I had no reason for thinking it, nothing to point to and say, this is it. She had these big, awkward feet, a few thin black curls. A dark, heavy beauty that was pooled in the deep circles under her eyes. She was clenching her jaw to stop from chattering. The wind up from the delta that day was cold. She looked at me only once. Her eyes blinked at different times. Anzi tapped his friend's shoulder with the bottle. The sun had passed behind a cloud and the two drank for a moment together watching the garden. And now you're in love. Anzi restated. But you know, it's not a happy feeling to see that sort of girl. 
Fesh said, suddenly animated. You don't look for beauty. You look for the trick, the switch, for some little clumsiness, a shape to the arm that doesn't please you, the sallow cheeks they've filled in, whatever it takes to be released. There are girls like her in all histories. It's by effect you know her. Men, women, emptying themselves out before her, making of themselves a vacuum into which she must be swept. It's obedience, then, that reigns in her wake, tectonic, withering obedience, that of mountains as they're ground into the earth by the rain. Not the war over Helen, but the stillness of the army as she strode right out the gates across the pools of blood without lifting her skirts. Anzi shrugged. Well, I say you might be overthinking it a bit. He muttered, but his frown remained. You know, it doesn't always have to be so elaborate. A lonely man sees a pretty girl at the station, nothing more. He took up his smoke again and bored him. But that wasn't all, of course. The train was coming. All the platform ticked into motion, the crowd inexplicably excited. And out of this, a man appeared right next to her. He was dressed exactly like me. The boots just polished, the clover feather off his shoulder, the embroidered tunic and the crystal chains. The Bastard, I thought, figuring they were brides together. But it was the eyes. It was like they were on hooks. And then he just started in, sniffing at her collar, folding her ear back with his fucking nose. She froze for a moment. He started babbling to her like a goat. The train had filled the station now so loud and everyone pushing forward that she staggered back. But the man was on her hands, out of his pockets now, clapping at the air. I thought he'll push her. But in that instant, she composed herself and took two neat little steps and put me right between them. Fesh chuckled to himself. <laughs> we didn't say a word. She sat with me all the way to my stop. The man was sitting across from us, staring at her and babbling away. I got out, she followed, him after her. It was raining. There were no carts in the street, and the pub where they have a ring-a-ding wasn't open yet. So I took her back to my building, and I locked the gate. She was soaked through now. Her teeth were chattering. I took her up to the garret, pointed out the ring-a-ding, pointed out the toilet, the laundry. She started the dryer, then the shower. At this, a smile pushed up from his throat. Even the sound of her piddling broke my heart. And at that, he fumbled the cordial to his lips. I watched until the man had pulled his face out of the gate and trudged back to the station. Then I poured us ices. There was a good light about the garret, oh, the best there can be, cupped it was, and the rain was hitting the glass and tin, softening everything. She was padding back and forth in bare feet, making her call on the ring-a-ding. I sat in the doorway, under the eaves by the plants, listening. The rain, the ices rattling, the pages turning, their bare feet rubbing together. And still, we didn't talk. The afternoon was enough. A cart pulled up to the gate and honked, black, polished, even came with a uniformed driver who popped out, umbrella in hand. She set down the glass, hesitated, paper crumpled, then she was gone. I went fucking mad after that. What was left of her trapped me. Even the fucking steam in the bathroom. And then there was the crumpled bit of paper. It only had a few strokes on it, like the pen had been set down over and over, but nothing had come out. 
I walked around all night crumpling and uncrumpling it, fucking mad with it. Anzi took the chunk of melon loaf out from under his nose. <sighs> Should have let the roast goose melt in your mouth, my friend. You were trying to be noble, weren't you? A name, that's all you needed. So you could say it cleanly and just let go of it. But here you are, wondering why you're so miserable. Fesh snatched the smoke from Anzi's lips. Brutally, he puffed a wall of smoke between them. But I wouldn't understand. Anzi went on, snatching back the smoke. That's what you want to say. You weren't in it for the low parts. You were stuck in some ethereal vortex or whatever. <sighs> and at that, he flicked his smoke away in disgust. It caromed off the honeysuckle and landed in the tub. The koi thrashed about briefly, stirring up plumes of filth. Fesh chested the loose buttons of his cardigan, then absently got up and plucked the smoke from the tub. I'm sorry, I can't focus. He said. No, no, you see, it's not that. That's not why I'm telling you all this. No, it was the next day. You see, the black cart came back. It was early that next morning. The driver said someone wanted to see me, and I followed him down to the cart and sat for a while in the back, him not driving, us not talking, with just snow music playing. He had this glass watch on, and he kept checking it, and then he drove. He drove like he was inhabited. We pierced the world when he drove and moved instead through despised flesh. The cart varied on a cloud of venom. The road gave up a moan of surprise, allowed us as we pleased. Laws were continuously scoured from the books and replaced with hieroglyphs and illuminations. I don't know where we went. To the islands, maybe? Into the groves? Somewhere far out into the delta. When the rupture sutured itself behind us, there was another road entirely. Ancient, rutted cobblestones that tunneled through a leaden dispersion of foliage. Walls, 4,000 fingers high, lined the street unbroken. Enormous white flowers, spectral in the headlights, thudded against the windshield, heavy as cakes. He took me to a maroon door. Inside, a path lost itself in a thicket of bamboo made deafening by frogs. I came out to a gallery of hedges. The most beautiful girl I'd ever seen was sitting at a wire table. The salver set before her was covered by pots of oil and a pitcher of cut flowers. She didn't look up. A corpulent figure in a pink damask chair loomed over her completely still. This figure wore a silk pajama that concealed face, hands, and feet. Dabbing her brush into the oils, the girl lifted the pajama with a finger and painted oil across the figure's brow. Finally, taking up a black flower, she pressed it to her nose, inhaled, then gently breathed out beneath the veil. This was all I was allowed. A servant emerged from the hedge and handed me this. He slid a terracotta envelope from his cardigan and dropped it onto the bench. Then I was ushered back to the car. Anzi, who had been scratching his balls, turned the envelope over in his hands. Etched into its face was a miasma of botanical heraldry, the escutcheon blank. Reversing it onto its lap, its contents clattered out. Ten pooks of sheeted amethyst. The stone stair to the 15th gate of the Center of Harmony and Fulfillment had been cut directly into the tuft. Tuft that rose like a gruesome yellow wave over the city. Its steps were polished, almost buttery from the centuries of aspirants. As the two friends climbed on, the star discharged its virulent pulse across the delta. The clouds, like leaves, were a shudder with pinkishness. 
At times too breathless to be understood, Anzi's exuberant talk cast Fesh deeper into his depression, and the less Fesh talked, the more forcibly Anzi insisted on the wondrous change of fortune. Parting the lapis lazuli curtains beneath the ramparts, Anzi took Fesh's hand and led him through the library, over the baths, and into the cloisters. Don't you remember how it was with Charlotte? He was babbling on. For months she had you babbling, and then that night at the clock she tripped over Dory's mastiff and fell right into your lap. After that, remember? You didn't want it at all. The lamps in the courtyard were being lit, and one by one the silhouettes of the trees hushed through the stonework. The dance floor was full. Fesh took the envelope from his cardigan and carelessly tossed it on the stone as they waited for the barman's booth to come up from the tank. I've been bought off, he groaned. Anzi shook his head, glancing over his shoulder suspiciously. Consider for a single fucking moment how lucky you are. There'll be no ceremony for it. He hissed into his friend's ear. For your happiness, it won't come as a gift. Is that what's fucking bothering you? That you should be grateful? Like it'd force you somehow to admit you'd no part in your own good fortune? Like luck were somehow the opposite of deserving or earning or whatever fucking principle you're belly down for these days? At that, Anzi stuffed the envelope back into the cardigan pocket. Darkly, Fesh chewed at his lip. I'd rather be that fucking painted bird on the train. Than what, eh? Rather be him than what? You don't even know what you're talking about. The barman's booth rose up before them with a clunk, and the barman shifted his shoulders against the walls, looking up expectantly. Anzi waved off his friend. Your menu is inscrutable, he observed to the barman. The barman bowed solemnly. It is written in an extinct language that was used only in the fishing villages along the lower... Well, then how can we order... Can you or can't you? I don't care which. What the fuck? We'll take two. Fesh said suddenly. The barman immediately set two assemblages of glasses before them on a velvet tray. The glasses, one large, one small, had been reversed, brimmed down, and set one over the other like matryoshkas. Large and small straws were twisted together with a ribbon and fit under the brims. Inside was a gray vapor that coveted the candy green center. You are, sir, as you too. But pay me before you touch Sitting down, Anzi continued to talk, but not listening, Fesh paused to examine the drinks. The dancers boiled around them and the silhouettes of the trees from the courtyard. It felt like they were intruding. He sipped at the straws. The effect crackled through him. He was refolded, upright. His gaze surged over Anzi with pure emptiness and pooled again over the other side. Oh. He said to himself humbly, as one does on realizing the painting is not a turtle at all, but a couple dead on a mattress. Noticing nothing, Anzi had stopped his talk and began to search the cloisters for women. Suddenly, he returned to their drinks. God damn it, I'm actually thirsty. He grumbled and, mistaking his friend's gaze for encouragement, sipped at the straws. What the fuck, 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 fuck? He pronounced, writing himself, then dropping back against the stonework. His features unpitched from his nose. His tongue came to rest snugly between his lips, no longer of any use. It might have been said that drugs can act only in two ways. Either they deprive your senses or redouble them, and that all effects derive from this action. Deprived, you fabricate what's lacking, and you're damned to the roiled and inconsequent rule of yourself. But redoubled, the senses overwhelm propriety, and you're graced again, as perhaps we only were in the very beginning, with the roiled and inconsequent rule of the world. 
The two friends sipped their drinks and surfaced among the dancers, pressing themselves into that sacred organism of celebration as bakers do their hands into dough. Partially a question of craft, though more deeply or causatively a consideration of pleasure. Their steps and the swing to their arms had lengthened, falling into time. Their feet had become unweighted, permissive now of caprices far beyond the legs. Hands sought as they pleased, the rhythm cycled onward and this way returned to all. What are you doing? Asked a bony blonde, poking fesh in the ribs. Her hair was woven to her companions in an enormous braid. They looked him over together by necessity and fired the same didactic look. Fesh looked back at them like he'd been tossed unexpectedly into the ocean, and they were back up the deck watching him drown, asking, What are you doing? They weren't dancers at all, he wondered. Your clothes. He stammered into the music, unsure. They look uncomfortable. The girls whispered to each other, not taking their eyes from him. What are you trying He asked, but he was speaking so softly they couldn't have heard him. Forgetting his question, he took a humble bow and skipped over the edge of the cloisters into the courtyard. Do you want mine? My clothes? They're comfortable, at least. I think so. He went on worthlessly to the bushes, then he resumed his sedate walk away from the music and towards the lamps. The glass door of the pavilion was closed by an oiled hand. Fesh imagined he was held up by the air's richness alone, hot and buxom with verdure, soil, and cigars. From somewhere farther in, shuffling cards, a woman's laughter. In the fogged glass of the ceiling, stars gasped pitifully on the verge of some long-repressed cry. The carpet processed into the dark through the plants. Little scenes of languor and hunger played out in the cushions in the fickle light of the paper lanterns. Perfumed men and women in powdered wigs pranced from one alcove to the next, collapsing in and out of each other, their movements affecting an exhausted, waxen gravity. Anzi? Fesh murmured, wringing his hands. Anzi stepped out from the vines, tears in his eyes. Fesh. Anzi croaked back. Behind him, a woman buried in an excess of golden upholstery squatted over a man's face and farted. The two friends continued out onto the green beneath the spire of the pavilion. Dogs were trotting around in the dark, sniffing about and rolling in the grass. From the iron girders hung giant bird cages filled with fireflies, crickets, violets, mint. The noxuary. Whispered Anzi reverently, though the meaning of this utterance was unclear. The woman was looking out at them from a bird cage illuminated by a foxfire that played off her feet. Who's that? Anzi asked half-heartedly. The woman stood beside a column of glass 60 fingers high. The column was filled with a turmoil of smoke. Directly beneath it had been placed a cushion draped with an ornate embroidered cloth. Fesh clambered inside the cage. On the woman's shoulder, there was a long black bird. Taking a finger from her mouth, the woman <clears throat> cleared her throat. It's a game, she said. Get the marble all the way through, and you win. In demonstration, she opened a small case, revealing a set of glowing blue marbles. As if in answer, the bird hopped from one shoulder to the other and opened its beak, unfurling a yellow ribbon through the woman's hair. Win what? Whimpered Anzi, but Fesh had already handed the girl the terracotta envelope. An intricate obsidian step stool carved with the bestiary of whales and cuttlefish was dragged to the foot of the column of smoke. 
The embroidered cloth was shaken out and relayed carefully onto the cushion. In these places, word of such happenings passes instantaneously as if remembered, born from the paradoxical lack of anything actually happening. And so the men and women press their wigged heads against the side of the cage, clucking and rubbing in and out of each other by the doorway. The cage swayed in their excitement. Fesh unlaced his boots, mud crumbling from the laces. The marble in his palm seemed weightless, as if a stray breath could blow it from his hand, or as if perhaps it were already gone. At the top of the obsidian step stool, he could hear at last the sifting of the column's mechanism like so many scissors. Putting his hand out to steady himself, he closed his eyes. The column twitched as a lover does, falling asleep, defining the meaninglessness that can nonetheless split one in two, and so, by that resemblance, the faces of women were returned to him, bearing the same expressions he'd seen as they made love, unaccountable, gone, it seemed, and that's all he remembered, is them being in their own way gone, points of fire far off, wending the hillside, searching the night forest for loss. The girl from the train inferred herself onto these memories, her face grafting onto the others, not in ecstasy, but as if it'd been reflected in his garret window, preoccupied and perhaps incurious. So even he too was gone from his own memories, and she was making love unendingly to herself. His audience was silent. A rictus of great suspense as Fesh appeared to meditate on the marble held over the column of smoke. In this moment, a retriever pushed its way into the birdcage and sniffed at the step stool, glancing up at Fesh before catching sight of the bird on the girl's shoulder. It started to bark. There was a minor commotion. The retriever, ignoring the scolding and shushing, jumped up and snapped at the bird, but Anzi, taking it by the scruff, dragged it out through the powdered wigs and back out onto the green. The woman alone remained fixated on Fesh. Even he had forgotten the marble, remarking blankly at a slight looseness, then a rise of the hand, but the woman noticed it, the smear of blue. Calmly, she knelt to the cloth. Holy fuck, she whispered to herself, and the bird fluttered up against its length of string, its teal beak agape, unraveling coil after coil of yellow ribbon down her back. Outside, a late spring storm had blown in from the south. The steps were dusted white. The clouds, shredded finely by the mountains, were left crestfallen on the streets. In the cart, Fesh shifted the bag of crowns to stop its clattering as they sped over the cobblestones. Enough. He murmured, wiping the fog from the window. But Fesh, this is your big chance. Anzi went on, undeterred. To have it your way. Fesh groaned. Oh. Ah, what is it they say? Anzi blabbed, spreading out further across the seats. You must forgive the countryman his torment. At the very least, leave him that, for he has nothing else. Enough. Please, sir, could you stop the cart? Keeping to the cover of the woods, but always staring in on the fire like a dog. Snow was falling again by the time Fesh reached the river. The star would rise on the hour, and he had nearly finished a second bottle of cordial, swaying willfully against the weight of the bag. Despite all his effort, he was still shivering. My big chance. He gurgled, stopping at the center of the bridge. The silty spring water, still agog with ice flows, was too high for boats to pass. It was true, he thought, standing there, that the city radiated from him if he let it. 
a wheel worn like a yoke spun by laws that remanded the moment of their enforcement. Looking south past the volcano into the delta, he imagined that single point aglow in the groves, the girl, where he was but a word at her lips, and with this, the city came to rest about him. The point disappeared. No, no one was watching. He hoisted the bag to the railing, then carefully tilted it over the river. A shudder ran the bulging fabric, trailing the pouring water, and finally from the bag, the koi, utterly without hope, threw themselves into the snowy air and dropped to the river below. This is the poem Unk, written and read by Ezra Stead. If you're lucky, maybe you've got one. That special uncle. The one you call Unk. The one who never has to be daddy. Never has to be responsible or resented. Unk gets to do just the fun stuff. And only when he wants to. Mine is gone now, they tell me. Hit by a truck in a parking lot in Hannibal, Missouri. A town that has been home to two great artists in history. Mark Twain and my unk, who taught me to draw. His final belongings are on the table, the contents of his pockets when he died. A wallet with a non-driver's identification card, a harmonica my father tells me is mine if I want it, a pack of Pall Mall lights. I always remembered him smoking cools. My brother and I used to sneak Lucy's from his pack, and he would pretend not to notice and never report it to our father, the kind of small fraternal deceit that helped earn him the title of Unk. And I like to think he didn't stop drawing until he stopped drawing breath. His life was the banshee wail of Carlos Santana, the thunder and bombast of John Bonham, the caustic melancholy snarl of Tom Waits, the twang of his speech melodious to my ears, and I wanted to talk like him until we moved up north, and the kids who called me country boy convinced me I didn't. The last time I saw him, I couldn't believe how small he was, as if the cancer that had taken his mother was eating through him as well, the umbilical pipeline reversed, feeding his vitality back into her, but I wish I could write like he drew, amorphous onyx claws reaching for the moon amidst a million pilot pen-prick stars, the rational precision of his nibs and brushes describing the curves of organic madness, and I can see him, playing harmonica in the Missouri twilight, bending the bluest note in the evening sky while the crickets harmonize and the fireflies supply the pyro Technics, and I wonder if my brother's son will ever hear Bonham's drums and know instinctively that he is being called home. If he will ever pick up a harmonica and blow the kind of notes you just can't play and look happy at the same time. If he will ever chase the ghost of a dream down a sheet of paper and find that he has sketched his own face. I wonder if he will inherit the seeds of genius that so easily blow away in the winds of real life when it's time to stop playing and get to bed, when the practicality of daddy's world comes crashing down like a thousand melted clocks on a makeshift horizon. I wonder if his unk will be there 
to make funny faces with him and ruin family portraits, to tell him dirty jokes he won't get until years later, to teach him how to whistle and skip rocks across the Mississippi. If I'm lucky, maybe I'll be one. This is poem number 10 from the Set in Amber collection, written and read by Alicia Giacchetti. Walking in your neighborhood, I see you, in the way the bricks meet the others and the used books are left on the street, or how we run into your friends. Accidentally? I can't tell. You have dessert to give your bartender. Do people do that? I don't know. I don't drink. You do it, though. Bring dessert to your bartender. She's pretty, and I'm, well, I'm nervous. This is poem number 11 from the Set in Amber collection, Written and read by Alicia Giacchetti. My sense of direction is terrible. Probably part of the reason I haven't been able to find my way. I've gotten lost in the weeds and thickets, the spurs sticking to my pants, pricking my fingers as I try to swat them away. This will help, you encourage, blindfolding me and shrouding me in darkness. So we just heard the poems number 10 and number 11 by Alicia Giacchetti and Unk by Ezra Stead. And in Alicia's poems, we get to see, again, depravity is relative, so it really depends on where you draw your line. These seem to be about being in bad relationships or first dates that may be awkward. Um, The person may have ulterior motives, may have different thoughts, may have their mind being elsewhere. Uh, They may not know the harm they're doing while they're doing it, but it can still be considered a type of depraved behavior. Yeah, yet in Unk, those acts of depravity actually earn the uncle the admiration of, in this case, his nephew, who's looking up to him here. And I think it's really interesting because while adults might look at that action of looking the other way, that fraternal deceit as an adult gives a kid a cigarette or lets them have a cigarette the kids look at it as a hero, as someone who's, who's helping them, I guess, um, accomplish the sinister deeds that they've always had in their own heads or have definitely pondered about uh, on more than one occasion. And as you said to start this episode, Carlos, right, all of those thoughts may have gone through our head at one time or another. But what if... What if someone actually took the time to plot what it would be like or what it would take to bring those most sinister, those most villainous thoughts to reality? It seems like that person could have used a role model like Unk to kind of talk him away from it. Or Carlos Molina to talk him into it. Here's our next story called The Supervental Monologue concocted by Gregory Karras and based on a realish conversation. He woke up and poured himself a cold beer. The hell with his liver, he reasoned. It was well-seasoned anyway. No harm, no foul. He knew the logic had flaws, but he gave himself a pass. As if further justification were needed, dark ales were the unofficial breakfast food of two countries he could think of, so protesters and gym rats could blow it out their asses. The Piper's bill wasn't supposed to come for at least another couple decades. Ripping a gruff, verbose gas cannon, he rubbed his stomach and closed the fridge. Yawning, stretching, he slunk into the backyard and smoked a cigarette, breakfast beer in hand in the morning drizzle. 
Smoking's no good. 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 The voices echoed, and he agreed while taking another drag. He finished the cigarette and tossed it down the storm drain. Fuck, Carlos. He said to himself. He's slept enough. He made his way back inside, oddly careful to lock the door behind him, picked up the phone, and punched the digits. growled a semi-comatose voice on the other end of the line. Asshole, it's been forever. Fuck you, Ben. (coughs) A cough. (coughs) You have any idea what the hell time it is out here? Ben smirked. Any time before five is too damn early for you, so I can't say I feel that bad. Dude, this is the earliest I've been up all year. Well, Ben shrugged. It's only March, and New York's the city that never sleeps. Just because Portland's the Shanghai capital of the world doesn't mean I have to bend to its rules. Nicely played. Carlos relented. What can I do you for? Carlos was always a hell of a guy. He was the kind of friend that could disappear for a decade, and then he and Ben would pick up a conversation just where they had left it before the alien abduction, or, in this case, an absconding to the left coast. You remember. Ben began. That article in the New York tabloid toilet paper after the Dark Knight came out when they said it would cost like $30 million to be Batman? There was a pause on Carlos's end and a flush of a john. Yeah, and? Well, Ben continued, Fuck Batman, says I. I could pull off international supervillainry, like Lex Luthor-type global chicanery, for about 20K and a team of roughly 20 cohorts. How are you going to find 20 guys that can keep their mouths shut? Carlos mused. It's easy to keep people quiet when they're trying to carry $100 million. I'm listening. Carlos replied, instantly awake. Ben cradled the phone between his ear and his shoulder and cracked his knuckles. I'm going to try a monologue on for size, so please indulge me. Yep. Carlos licensed. Swell. Here goes. The supervillain monologue. The 20 humans you hire have to consist of a particular roster. At least one financial expert, and you need a chemist. And a two-bit mechanical engineer. The rest can include yourself, who we'll call the supervillain for the time being, and 16 other motherfuckers with very little regard for life in general and with the utmost ability to keep their mouths clamped shut. I understand that I'm already asking a lot. It would also be helpful if half the crew were from Boston and half from New York, but those numbers don't have to be hard and fast. And why Boston and New York, you'd ask? Well, all in due time, Mr. Bond. Now that you've assembled your staff, you get your chemist and engineer cracking. Out of the chemist, you're going to need a deadly-as-fuck gas that works like a spy-flick cyanide capsule, but writ large. One puff of this shit in your lungs, and it's you and potentially your whole block singing with the choir invisible. Monty Python kicks ass, for the record. Once Baxter Stockman gets that shit under wraps, you need to get your engineer working on small but powerful canisters to distribute the gas. Basically, that's where all your startup capital is going. You're going to need a lot of these canisters, like at least 200, depending on their range, and they have to be easily portable, about the size of a can of hairspray. Actually, you might be able to use cans of hairspray, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The ability to remote detonate, by the way, is also an integral part of the mechanism. And aren't we lucky that there's free Wi-Fi almost every damn where, including many subway stations? Okay, once these canisters have been designed and built, you fill half with the deadly gas and half with plain black dye, the kind of shit that'll shoot up a cloud of black smoke but won't kill a cockroach. Essentially, what you have is a payload of death and a payload of panic. 
The next step in this scheme requires you to select two major metropolitan areas. For the sake of proximity and familiarity, I have selected New York and Boston, neither of which are small potatoes and both of which have fairly extensive subway systems. You take a weekend and split your team of 20 into two teams of 10. 10 take a load of canisters to Boston and then the other head off to New York. Once the Boston and New York canisters are in place, well, before that actually, you turn to your financial guy. His job is to create 100 untraceable bank accounts in some country like the Cayman Islands because, well, Switzerland, I believe, can now disclose banking records, which would shoot your plan to total shit. Anonymity is key. Such is the difference between comic book villains and the real world. In comics, the gimmick is king. The Joker wants everyone to know that he was the one who killed all these people with smiley fish or whatever. In the real world, the only way you can really get away and enjoy the spoils, unless of course you're an idealist, is for no one to have any way to trace who it is you really are. Granted, in the realm of Twitter and Facebook and GPS-enabled phones, it is incredibly difficult to hide. But if you can pull off these steps without streaming it live accidentally, you're in the clear. Well, you get your financial guy to open 100 accounts and then put the account numbers and passwords in 100 plain white envelopes. You put 20 envelopes aside for you and your crew and then you address the other 80 with names randomly chosen from the New York and Boston phone books. Literally, it becomes open the book and pick a name, four score times. This is all a very busy weekend for you and your team. Monday morning rolls around, and if none of the canisters have been found, granted hard in today's cultural climate, you give the city of Boston a buzz at about 10 a.m. Once you can actually speak to someone important, you say that you've planted deadly canisters all over the city and the municipality has one hour to deposit $10 billion split 100 ways into 100 offshore bank accounts, or else you will murder the entire population in one fell swoop. You, of course, have remote access to the canisters and are not afraid to take the lives of about 10 million human beings. Now, don't you sound like a badass? Here is where the interesting notions start popping up. One hour is absolutely too fast for a city council to deal with all the likely red tape. We've all seen the movies, and we all know how the mayor or the chief of police or whoever tries to stall the terrorists. You're almost banking on this, no pun intended. And 10 billion of today's dollars really isn't that much in the grand scheme of things. With major cities like Boston and New York, that's a mere fraction of their annual budgets. Not too big a deal, at least, theoretically. Likely, though, you'll get the idealists on the quote-unquote right side of the law that would never give anybody anything who wasn't already the crooked CEO of some Fortune 500 pile of bullshit. So the Boston hour passes, no answer, and then BAM, you set off all the Boston canisters, each of which was loaded with this well-engineered black dye. Before long, you have a cloud of black smoke sitting over the baked bean capital of the world, fuck the Patriots by the way, and you have a lot of people panicking in the streets. Solid fucking gold. Social media will do 99% of the work for you. It is now 11 a.m. and you give New York City a call. You ask them if they just seen what went down in Boston. I'll bet my left testicle they would respond with an emphatic fuck yes, solid platinum. Well, you continue. Your city, the most important financial center on the planet, is rigged with actual deadly as fuck gas. The same rules apply. One hour, $10 billion, 100 offshore accounts. You have the option now to threaten to release some gas. I would recommend Midtown, just to truly scare the shit out of the money-grubbing bastards who run the city's coffers. Here's where you must totally part with morality and decency. Honestly, though, you might end up killing an entire city, so you'd have to be pretty twisted to get this ball rolling in the first place. But, you know, freedom of speech and all that, unless we press ahead. There can be no coitus interruptus when it comes to supervillainy and murder on a major metropolitan scale. At this point, you pray New York pays up 
and that you won't have to kill the cultural mecca of the United States. Hoping that's the way things shake out, you mail out the 80 randomly addressed envelopes, and while the CIA and FBI are tracking down those poor buggers, many of whom will turn in their envelopes to the authorities or whatever, you make sure that you and your 19 associates cash out as soon as possible and then disappear. Each member of your wild bunch makes out with a cool $100 million. Not too shabby, I would say. And of the $100 million, it would take maybe $10 million to pay off a bunch of people to guarantee that you no longer exist in any sort of trackable way. There's an awful lot I could do with $90 million in spending cash, especially if I had to live out the rest of my life in, say, Fiji or some roustabout Southeast Asian island. All said and done, I would put that under the fairly doable category. Ben finished, putting his beer mug in the sink. And if New York doesn't pay up? Carlos asked through a mighty yawn. Well, I guess shit happens. At least I'll write a book about it, and it only took 20k to kill an entire city. You're a mad dog. I'd need a better supervillain name than that. Fuck off, I'm calling the FBI. Carlos quipped as he hung up the phone. Ben took quick inventory of his apartment, cracking his back, he considered making an appointment to see a chiropractor or maxing out the cash advance on his credit card. He approached his computer. The moral of the story? Scheming is a good substitute for morning coffee. Where's the Door is a production of Bib Media and is produced by Leslie King, Joe Masiri, and Carlos A. Molina. Thank you to Matt Davis for the logo. Theme music by Jeff Huberman. This episode features the writing of Jax Lepage and Greg Karras, the poetry of Ezra Stead and Alicia Giacchetti, and the voices of Catherine Krauss, Brian Wiles, Ezra Stead, Gregory Karras, Carlos A. Molina, Joe Masiri, and Leslie King. Be sure to check out all of our episodes at bibmedia.tv. And if you have a story you'd like to submit to the podcast or would like to make a contribution to help our efforts, feel free to email us at thedoor at bibmedia.tv. Who's there? The Castanet. The Castanet who? The western winds of spring. Behind him, a woman buried in an access of golden upholstery squatted over a man's face and farted. 